0: Hi, everyone. This is America adapts the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're doing well in these crazy times and social distancing as best you can. I have what I hope is a useful episode to you during these trying times. I've reached out to a couple of colleagues in the adaptation space. Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund and Emily Wasley of WSP come on to discuss how they are coping with this pandemic, how they are able to keep up their adaptation work, and also to give us a bit of a pep talk. Also joining me is Dr. Gabriel Henderson of the American Institute of Physics. Gabriel published a paper looking at some early climate adaptation legislation that dates back, and this is interesting, to the Carter administration. We talk about what they were trying to accomplish and how those efforts have influenced modern day adaptation. But first, a quick word from our friends at Capture. Working from home this week? Find out how much CO2 you're saving with the Capture app. Head to www.thecapture.club slash teams to learn more. That's thecapture.club slash teams. You can also find the link to that in my show notes. Check it out. Okay, upcoming episodes. I have Dr. Linda Shai from Cornell University coming on to talk about adaptation, equity, and urban planning. Also coming up, the return of Dr. Michael Mann. We're going to talk about how science is being attacked during this pandemic and how that relates to his own climate science battles. We'll also discuss his sabbatical last year in Australia where he was in the thick of those catastrophic fires we kept reading about. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Sympatico Studios. This has been an excellent development for me. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel on its Simpatico. Right now, we're recording pilots. I've already done dozens of episodes and looking to do many more. This has really been exciting for me, and I've been able to talk with adaptation professionals from around the world. Last week, I chatted with experts from Bangladesh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States. Again, if this isn't obvious, this isn't the podcast. This is streaming television. If you are a professional working in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work you're doing. Brianna, Jared, Barrett. These are listeners of the podcast who have come on Sympatico to share in the important work they're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. If you're looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. And we're also encouraging you just to come check things out. Come watch a live show and join the community room. The software is behind a firewall, so reach out to me or go to simpatico.com and put your information in, and we'll get directions for you to get into the show. Yes, it's free. We just want you to check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Okay, let's join Sean and Emily and see what adaptation work they're up to. Hey, adapters. I've got on a familiar voice. It's Sean Martin at World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Sean. It's been a while. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Doug. Good to see you. Great to be back. Nice to call me a familiar voice. I don't know if everyone will recognize this voice, but this is my voice. Some of the classic episodes, of course they recognize your voice. Well, I hope so. Thanks. Let's just,
0: for those, I have a lot of new listeners, I think since your last uh, appearance on the episode, what what do you do at World Wildlife Fund?
1: So uh, for the past 10 years at WWF, I've been leading our climate change adaptation and resilience team. And in the last, since about last fall i've been the acting lead for our entire climate change program so uh i've been a busy guy that's why we don't talk as much anymore but you're just exactly right
0: (laughs) you're so busy with your new (laughs) roles and responsibilities all right i'm I'm very happy for you there okay i want people to sort of visualize too what's going on with the coronavirus and where, where everybody's at so where are
1: you based and sort of what what's the kind of scene like where you're at our office is headquartered in Washington, D.C., and we probably have about three or 400 people based in that office. We actually took quite early action before other offices did. We started our work-from-home stint probably the week before everyone else started doing it, and I'm actually pretty proud of what WW has done. We really thought through it. We saw this coming, and and we were all prepped and ready to go before we even had to. And things have been pretty seamless. We have the capacity to continue work remotely. It's changed our style a little bit, but the work continues to move forward pretty seamlessly, with some obvious exceptions. What about project work that you, you need to do? Like there's WWF
0: does a lot of work in the field in the short term. How is it impacting people?
1: So, yes, yeah, uh, any travel particularly first international travel and then domestic travel, has been put on hold. And it is, I wouldn't say that it's delaying our work, though. And we've quickly recovered to move things virtually. And that's meant some, you know, when you have people coming to a meeting from all over the globe, you're in one time zone in one place. When those people are scattered across 24 time zones, it makes meeting together quite challenging. but. Uh, people are rising to the challenge and we've successfully converted some of our field visits to online discussions, perhaps not as rich as exciting, but it's different. And we're learning a lot about how to work differently when you can't travel and our carbon emissions are down like everybody <laughs> else's. So that's a good thing.
0: Okay, and so you have staff there, especially in the, your adaptation team, and you're, you know, there's that opportunity when you're walking in the hallways to see people and to chat and to do those things. How are you trying to maintain that? I know everyone's working from home now. Is there a daily, every two-day kind of check-in? How are you handling that?
1: You know, we discuss this a lot. We have check-ins with our leadership team, and uh, people are just saying that now they're in back-to-back Zoom meetings all day. It almost feels like we're being over in touch with each other to compensate for not being in the halls and having the water cooler conversations. And we're trying to figure out, OK, what's the right level of staying in touch and staring at your screen all day? And so we're trying to find other ways to stay in touch. But besides, what one thing I've noticed, though, is I'm pretty very well connected with the people where I have business reasons to speak with them. But I'm missing out on the people I would see in the hallway and just get information. Hey, what's going on in your life? What's going on in the office? Uh, And all of those conversations have just stopped. So I have deeper contact with a small set of people and I've lost contact with a lot of people that I relied on for social interaction. And that's kind of different.
0: Well, I think now a lot of people kind of understand where it ha- my workspace, and there's a lot of
1: wearing pajamas until midday. <laughs> I do not do that, by the way. I dress up every day. Good, good. Okay, uh, good. Keep it professional. I usually shave, <laughs> but you are on camera. People see what you look like. All right, so
0: here's a question. We're hearing a lot in the climate space about lessons learned from the coronavirus, and Maybe in some ways, I'm not necessarily benefiting adaptation, but what lessons can we learn about, you know, society's response and what's sort of happening out there? Have you had a chance to kind of think about it that, wow, there's all these efforts targeted at this issue. Maybe we could do something in in the adaptation space. Have you had a chance to think like that?
1: Yeah. So I've been thinking about it since three o'clock this morning. Oh, okay. And you know, I was having a sleepless night that happens to me every once in a while, and I usually turn to podcasts to lull me back to sleep. Not yours, Doug. Because it keeps you up. uh, It's interesting, but go on. Yes, right. So I uh turned to five thirty-eight, uh one of my favorite blogs, and and they have podcasts, and uh they had a podcast that I discovered three o'clock this morning, why forecasting COVID nineteen is harder than forecasting elections. And what they were talking about was modeling the pandemic and what we can what goes into models and what we can expect to get out of models and how people really want answers. And models aren't designed to give you answers or give you a range of possibilities and projections. And the more I listen to that podcast and them talking about modeling, I'm saying, well, we have the exact same experience with climate modeling And getting people to understand the uncertainty about the future and what's going to happen is I I think this is a new teaching moment. I haven't quite thought through all of this yet, but this is a new teaching moment for me in adaptation. I want to use this pandemic as a metaphor for the climate crisis. So let me just try out a few new ideas on you and your listeners and see if they resonate. So we talk a lot about flattening the curve in the pandemic and i've seen people take this flatten the curve image and try to say this is what we need for climate change and i don't quite understand it they're not really making a clear connection so people are using that flatten the curve graph as if it's perfectly analogous to climate change and it's not that graph for the covid crisis assumes if we do not prepare if we do not employ social distancing that cases will spike rapidly and then fall just as quickly With social distancing, that you actually flatten the curve, the cases rise more slowly and then gradually fall off. With climate change, even if we reduce our emissions, the temperatures will go up, but they're not going to come back down. They're going to rise to either a 2 degree or a 3 degree or 1.5 degrees, and they're going to stay there. They don't come back down. And so that's where the analogy with the flatten the curve graph sort of ends. So if you're talking about climate change... We know the impacts of climate change are kind of like the illnesses and then potentially deaths in it in an epidemic. And what we're trying to do is flatten the curves. We're keeping the number of people getting sick to a manageable level so we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Social distancing is like reducing your emissions. If we can level the curve by reducing our social distance, we can also level the curve of temperature change by reducing our emissions. The difference with adaptation is that in this in this health crisis, we understand that social distancing will level the curve, will have a slower rate of infections that we can manage. And then we have to manage those. You know, it's not going to spike. There will still be a lot of infections, but we still have to deal with those. With climate change it seems like people have still not realized even if we reduce emissions if with the the climate equivalent of social distancing we still have to deal with the impacts we can level temperature rise to 1.5 or 2 degrees but no one's thinking well that's still a lot of change and we need to manage that change that's what adaptation is and that message is not getting through to people it's They're going back to the models. While the models are so uncertain, is it 100,000 deaths or 2.2 million deaths? And until you tell us, we're not going to do anything. And that's kind of what we hear out in the real world when we're talking about climate change. It's like if a hospital manager said they weren't going to prepare for more patients with COVID unless they knew exactly how many patients they were going to get, when they would arrive, what kind of treatment they would need, and when they would leave. In the climate change world, people are not acting in the face of that uncertainty like they are with the COVID crisis. Hospital managers are preparing, having all those unknowns out there. And people in the conservation or development world or other sectors just aren't doing that with the climate information we have available to us now. So I'm trying to think, how do we translate this this big crisis into a teaching moment? We'll get people to understand You can level the curve, but that doesn't mean you're safe. You still have a lot of work to do to manage the effects that are happening now and will continue for a very long time.
0: No, I like that a lot. And I I think I get what you're saying in you know what you should.
1: I hope about. so because that's all I got.
0: Keep working on it, but listen. Uh, you know, there's the, the all the charts, the flatten the curve, the famous the chart that we all see now. I think what you're just sort of saying there is flatten the climate impacts curve. You know, and that's through the reducing your carbon footprint. Wonder if there's a way that you can yeah. play around with that chart, embed some of the climate terminology, because I do think that's really good. Because I think a lot of us in the adaptation space get a little bit complacent of, well, we're just responding to these climate impacts today and we're just going to keep on adapting with that, The whole overall looming threat, it's only going to get it worse and we're not going to be able to adapt to it all if we just don't get control under those emissions. So I think that's what you're saying. And yep. yeah, I think there's, I think there's some, some good visuals that come out of it. That's good,
1: Sean. Great. Well, the visuals are out there. People are using those visuals without explaining what they mean. I mean, you see a spike of deaths and then the deaths tail off in the climate crisis. You're going to see a leveling of temperatures a long time from now, but the impacts are going to continue. We're going to be managing the after effects for a long, long time. It's not going to go away in a year with a vaccine.
0: All right, Sean, that, that's fantastic. So for my listeners out there, any words of encouragement? Some of them are working remotely and kind of trying to keep their heads down and do their thing. Well, you have Any words for them?
1: Yeah, so our work is slowed down a little bit, the pace is different, you know, lots of us were going to go to conferences that are now moving online. It is a great time to learn. Take some free time, stop watching Tiger King <laughs> and tune into an adaptation webinar or a climate change conference and and just take some time to get up to speed because when we all go back to work, we're going to have to jump in deeper and harder than ever. And Reinvent yourself.
0: Great words. Thanks for coming on, and good luck with what you're doing.
1: Thanks, and I look forward to hearing from you and your listeners soon.
0: Hey, adapters, I'm back at it. I've got a familiar voice again. It's Emily Wozley, Senior Project Director and Future Ready Advisor at WSP. How's it going?
2: Hey, Doug, it's going okay. You know, all things considered, hanging in there.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to get into that. That's why I'm doing this episode. But you've been on the podcast before, and you were at my year year in review episode, which has been a very popular episode. But for those who aren't familiar with you, what do you do there at WSP? I introduced you there, but what, what are some things you do?
2: Sure. WSP is a large infrastructure and engineering consulting firm, and we work on bridges, roads, major infrastructure projects, natural infrastructure projects. And we are touted, and I'm happy to say, that I know from internally that we are a truly sustainable firm and we are, have also been in the resilience space for a while and working on our own resilience and helping our clients be future ready, which is one of the main roles that I have. But one of my key roles is to help our um, corporate clients to on their journeys for climate risk and resilience management. So working with them on anything related to the task force and climate related financial disclosures, TCFD, really getting a better understanding of what their climate risks and opportunities are as it relates to market shifts, as it relates to physical implications. And then beyond to how do we institutionalize resilience across the company to be able to prepare for and withstand shocks and stressors, one of which is pandemic But as well as, you know, the chronic stresses from climate change, like sea level rise, higher temperatures and changing precipitation patterns.
0: Well, you're in good spot for that. Okay, I'm just trying to get people to kind of visualize too. where are all guests coming from. Everyone's having to go to this remote model. So what is your situation like? What what were you doing? Were you kind of going to an office and now what is your status right now?
2: How does it affect you that way? Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate. I have been working from home and in an office on and off uh, for the past couple, several years, especially since I moved to California. Um, so when I started with WSP back in November, I was working from home once a, once a week. But now I'm, for the first couple of weeks, I sheltering place in my teeny tiny 470 square foot apartment in downtown Oakland. And it got a little bit too isolating for me. And, you know, as I mentioned previously, I'm an extrovert. I love people. I love engaging with other people. It provides me with energy. Um, I I do know how to be alone and to find different hobbies to to work on. Like, I play the violin. I can do some calligraphy. I do coloring. All sorts of things that I was trying just were not... I needed to be around other people. Um, my family, my parents are in their 70s, and so decided to come down here to Monterey, a little teeny tiny oasis within California. So not a bad place to come down to shelter in place. And now I get to work out of my mom's art studio. My dog buddy's here with us. And, you know, the, the vast amount of space that's down here allows me to be still physically distancing from people and respecting that, but being able to connect with nature.
0: Glad it worked out for you that way. That's great. Let's talk about WSP and your adaptation work there. And how has this impacted, I guess, your more immediate work? Some people are working on projects. They have to kind of go out in the field. I'm not quite sure if that's how your work. Have you been able to pivot and do most of your work even remotely?
2: Yes. So WSP broadly, as I mentioned, there are 500,000 people that work on infrastructure on engineering projects worldwide. And so there have been a lot of folks that do work in the field, supporting our clients and working on projects that are construction related or design or engineering related that are not able to go out in the field just because of the different restrictions that are in place. We've been taking measures to make sure that we keep those employees safe, that we keep them on board. So there have been, you know, different structures that have been put into place to be able to to maintain those employees and not have to furlough them, not have to lay anyone off. So whether it's different pay cuts by tier or going down to part-time. You know, we're a very adaptable firm because we are not only consultants, but we're also in the sustainability and resilience space. So it's kind of in our nature to be flexible when it comes to working on a variety of different projects. So I feel very blessed because the team that I work on is the sustainability energy and climate change team, and we can work remotely at any point. And so, We are all still very connected. We have virtual happy hours. We have virtual coffees. We have virtual lunches where we all get on the video. And some of us are in pajama pants, but I think that's kind of the reality of where we are today. We need to be in a comfort zone to be able to be effective and efficient in the work that we do. Our work has grown considerably, not because of COVID-19, but in light of the fact that you know chronic issues like deforestation and population growth that have kind of contributed to the rise in other diseases and new diseases and the spread of these diseases is and can be related to and exacerbated by climate change. So our clients are asking us a lot of questions around COVID-19 and climate change, how climate change could exacerbate diseases in the future. And what my primary focus is really working with our companies that we support and understanding what risk management measures they have in place, how resilient they are as a business, as an organization, how resilient their employees are, and it's all interrelated. And so no matter what the topic or the stressor or the shock, understanding true resilience from an organizational perspective has really been tested lately. And there are going to be a lot of lessons learned through this process that I hope we can implement for longer term, you know, kind of all hazards resilience.
0: Okay, you sort of answered my next question. And uh, I think maybe put on your cap from previous jobs, too. I know when you worked in D.C., is that you look at the response to the coronavirus and people are already starting to talk about like, oh, you know, what about climate change? And, you know, you have the society wide, very quick response to what's going on here. Do you see any lessons learned or how it could be applied to the adaptation space and you know it i mean it's you don't necessarily want to exploit a situation but at the same time you must be fascinated by the fact that there was just we want people to re the world to react to climate change and take action now and what we just saw almost in an instant respond to the coronavirus so what are your thoughts lessons learned for the adaptation community
2: Yep. Great question. And there there are two key lessons learned that I would note that are incredibly important. One, I think, you know, tracking global trends from a chronic perspective is essential and is a good lessons learned from the pandemic. The other component is that a lot of adaptation practitioners and folks that, that I've worked with over the past couple of years really know how to to draft future scenarios. And these are scenarios that we hope never come to fruition. And right now, the pandemic and the impact that's having on vulnerable communities, on the people that are on the front lines, the, the you know, the separation of the haves and have nots is so evident as a result of this. And if we had had some strategic foresight into planning for something of this nature, and it's different from climate in that well, it's, it's very, it's similar, but it's different. So with climate change, it happens over time, but then it triggers those extreme weather events. And with this pandemic, it's the pandemic is the trigger and the shock to the system, but the degradation of our environment and the, you know, deforestation of our, our land has been really the chronic issue here. So with our scenario planning for adaptation and resilience planning in general, a lot of us do get into designing future scenarios that we play out now so we can be prepared for those, those unknowns. And right now there are a lot of unknown unknowns um, and that's really scary. And that can provide a lot of uncertainty to people, but the more that we prepare and the more that we plan ahead and we think of the unthinkable and we, we weave those into our narratives and we exercise you know, what could happen, the what ifs situations, I think the better prepared will be over time.
0: So last question. And I think this is, I was going to kind of merge two questions here. You are on the board of ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. What sort of words of encouragement can you give out there to the adaptation community and maybe just kind of bring in an example or two of just, I'm sure you're staying in touch with ASAP on what's going on here.
2: Sure. Yes. So I am on the board and we actually just had a A COVID-19 and adaptation professionals kind of town hall today. With I think we had about 80 adaptation professionals on the line. Um, So it's you know it's a time when folks in the climate space who have been beating the drum on looking at global trends, thinking about things in a strategic manner, and really weaving in the the impacts that we're having on the environment and what that means to our climate for a long time that are probably not surprised that this is happening. And it's incredibly unfortunate, but I think it's also encouraging that perhaps this could be the transformational change that we needed and that we needed to have for uh, behaviors to change for society to truly understand what they need versus what they want. And so I think it's a, it's a time where we can reflect on what happened? What got us to where we are, and what we can do next? It can is also a time where we can reconnect with our family. The time where we can practice being alone and slowing down, which a lot of us aren't, you know, as familiar with how to do that. So there are a lot of lessons learned that I'm capturing um, and that I'm sharing with others, and I'm learning from others. So I just hope that everyone is staying indoors, staying safe, staying healthy and we will get through this.
0: All right, great final message, and thank you, Emily, for coming on. That was awesome, and I hope people are inspired by what you say.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Doug. It's always fun to be on the America Adapts podcast.
0: Hey, Adapters, I am talking with Dr. Gabriel Henderson. Gabriel is an associate historian at AIP, the American Institute of Physics. Hi, Gabriel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Well, thanks for coming on. It's a a bit of crazy times that we're dealing with here, but I appreciate you, you calling in and and we're going to have a bit of a history lesson here. But I guess just first off, what do you do at AIP?
3: I am a researcher. So I was brought on in 2017 to translate my book, my dissertation into a book and study the history of climate policy in the United States, particularly I've done a lot of research with uh, the history of climate legislation, efforts to deal with climate during the uh,
0: 1970s and early 80s. All right, I don't think I've really talked to a climate historian, but that's sort of what you are, right?
3: Technically, not really, because climate historians are typically those people who, who are scientists and they're specifically trained to look at the history and show how the history of climate uh, has changed over time. So they look at paleo records, for instance, they look at ice cores. And so climate historians tend to be those individuals. I just tend to think of. So you reverse the terms, I guess, is probably right. The best right, word. right. historian of climate science or historian of climate policy. I guess
0: it could, it's easy enough to get caught up in the terminology of what technically <laughs> is. <laughs> it is a little frustrating at times. Okay. Well, before we dig into, you, you've shared some materials with me and some interesting things that happened in the 70s, but how did you get involved with this topic in the first place?
3: So a number of years ago, I was a grad student. And I came across some work published by a uh, historian named Roger Pilkey, Jr., who's out in Colorado, and he had written a little bit about this so-called National Climate Program Act, but it was very scattered. It wasn't very in-depth. It wasn't archivally rich. Uh, and then other people had mentioned in their research, Paul Edwards, who at that time was out in Michigan, wrote a book a number of years ago, and he mentioned the National Climate Act. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting act. I'd like to learn more about it because you don't often hear about climate legislation dealing specifically with climate change. And so I went. Uh, I was offered a, an opportunity to spend a summer in New York, and that kind of gave me the flexibility to learn more about this national climate program, who was involved, why did they get involved, what was their motivation. They held a bunch of hearings were held throughout the late 1970s. The legislation was first introduced in 1975 by a couple of Republican conservative types out in the uh, Kansas and New Mexico. And I thought, well that's kind of an interesting thing, because you often don't hear about Republicans supporting climate legislation. And so that kind of gave birth to my interests and ultimately an article that was published on this mysterious climate program act.
0: The National Climate Program, and this is the the paper that you shared with me, but t- tell us a little bit about that, and then I'm going to follow up with really what was the situation like back then? It wasn't climate politics like it is today. No,
3: not at all. It was a much different political environment, and climate had not. Yet gained the, what appears to be this kind of intrinsic ability to separate people. Um, At the time in the, in the mid to late seventies, it was just coming on the political landscape in the United States, especially. And both conservatives and liberal Democrats kind of came together in an effort to pass legislation dealing with what they saw Mm -hmm. as climate induced hazards like agricultural shortages throughout the world and energy shortages with they were thinking about the 1974 uh, energy crisis and they were thinking about well how can we avoid some of these problems and many climate scientists were saying that climate was in fact changing that it wasn't just the weather becoming too cold or too hot that it was really something fundamental to the global system uh, as they understood it, so state climatologists, especially, were very much interested in. Well, if there, if we have these problems, what kind of solutions can we, as a community, offer to policymakers? And so they started to kind of advocate for a national climate act that brought together climate services, basically applying applied climatology at kind of ground level and trying to harmonize that with the federal and state government structure. At the time. And so they had a lot of they had some support in Congress. It, what there was by no means a majority of people that were sponsoring this this legislation. And it went through a lot of different variations. It was introduced in 75. It didn't get uh, signed by President Carter until 78. So there, you know, in that three year period, there was a lot of changes. There was a lot of feedback, a lot of hearings held to kind of finalize the language And so when you're talking about kind of what was the mindset in the 1970s, it was all over the newspapers that climate was changing. There was increasing concern about carbon dioxide emissions within the broader context of kind of an earlier idea that the climate was becoming colder. So are is there a future ice age coming at us? And so these kinds of fears weren't forming broad kind of political interest in dealing with this thing called climate change.
0: So let me just be clear, too. There was the issue of climate change. There was the issue of carbon emissions. But really, in regards to some of these policy discussions, they weren't talking about doing anything in relation to mitigating the human footprint around carbon emissions. Right. Not the the work that you were looking at.
3: Not at the time, no. Uh, there was obviously some interest during, especially during the Carter administration, which really was the first administration to deal with climate change head on, just in terms of figuring out what to do about it and having high level discussions about it. But there was no serious discussion about reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, that really did come much later uh, during the late 80s and early 90s, when individuals like James Hansen started to, Talk about in public uh, the risks that we face as a as a
0: people, as a as humanity. I, I guess that's interesting too, is that you, they're looking at some of this legislation and. Even though they're, I guess they're acknowledging climate is changing, it's more sort of an acknowledgement. It's like climate is this unpredictable thing and it's sort of detached from like humans are driving it. But let's be proactive anyway. And I guess the paper that you shared, there was a lot of interest in just better climate science and powering climatologists. And it, is that really the focus of what they were trying to do here?
3: So there is definitely a motivation to do something significant. I think that there is enough political pressure to say this is a real problem. We need to deal with it. We need to acknowledge it on its face and understand its implications for us as a as a society. And then the question becomes, well, which avenue do you go down? Do you go down the let's create a, a, found, a kind of research foundation, create the protocols, create the organizational structures. Uh, Create the pathways to do a lot of research and improve our predictions, essentially our forecasts in order to then make the uh, important decisions later on. Or do we start implementing climate services, start create, start helping people on the ground to make decisions and start allowing uh states for instance to effectively tailor their research agendas around this problem and potentially help people like farmers the energy sector really the, so there was this kind of two stream approach and the question then becomes well which stream wins out and so what this article shows is that one stream was represented by the administration the the let's do pure research to improve predictions pathway and then there was this other pathway that was much more supported by a climate, state climatologist, congressmen, about let's improve our climate services uh, and help people deal with uh, what they kind of termed as this lack of flexibility built into the system. Let's improve the, they often talked about during hearings, for instance, shock absorber, shock absorbers as kind of a thing to improve. Basically became a cart before the horse problem. Do you want to invest a lot of research, a lot of money in research first and then make decisions or do you want to make decisions now and then while you're promoting uh, this uh, kind of climate research agenda.
0: So I just want to read a, a sentence from your paper, and I think it's just very revealing. And on January 4th, 1977, Representative George Brown, Jr., California, introduced legislation that served two purposes, one, to improve the scientific reliability of climate prediction, and two, fund applied climatological research to improve the resilience of American society in the face of climate-induced stresses. That sounds a heck of a lot like climate adaptation to me. It,
3: that's very much exactly what it was. It was an early kind of embryonic conception of what climate adaptation would look like. I mean, they were really at the ground level, really in the basement of conceptualizing, well, we recognize that the climate is a problem. Well, how do we create an organizational kind of bureaucratic structure that would allow us to actually do something about it to build flexibility to build resilience to build adaptation into our systems all very abstract and very kind of cerebral, but they really were talking about things like, well, how much food do we have to store from year to year to deal with extremes in weather? Or should we create systems where energy is transmitted in a way that incorporates climate information? And so do different regions of the country need more energy at certain times of the year, certain every decade? So they started to talk more like in terms of climate probabilities. And so it was all very kind of just, well, okay these are challenges. And then how do we then legislate it? How do we create a legislative structure around these issues?
0: What would be interesting, obviously, is as you look at that language, they weren't thinking about in the same context that we are is that we. Each passing decade, things get worse. So if we don't do reduce it, but you know, get the temperatures two degrees or three degrees, so you, you just look at back at this language and you think about resilience of American society. They weren't obviously thinking about a worsening situation. They were just thinking about an unpredictable situation, right?
3: Pretty much. I mean, at the time, climate. Prediction was a uh, it was a pretty heavy topic. It was that there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of disagreement about just how predictable climate could be. Some people thought it was predictable, but the science of climate prediction was so immature that you couldn't do it reliably enough for policymakers. So we need to keep working on it. Others believe that because it's a such a kind of quasi stochastic system, that the complexity of it was just too much for us to solve at all even under the most ideal circumstances. So there was a wide range of opinion about just how predictable climate change would be. And even if you were to predict climate change well, then there was a question about, well, what do we do about the potential impacts, the risks, the risk management and the bureaucratic systems seem to be at the time very much aware of its own deficiencies. So these congressmen, I like to think of them as kind of identifiers of bureaucratic problems that they sought to resolve through this legislation.
0: All right. So I kind of want to summarize what happened. We had this legislation, but just kind of, and you mentioned again in the article, but what happened and where are we kind of today if you've gotten to look back at some of those early attempts at climate policy.
3: So sure. So the immediate instinct that I had going into the research was that President Carter was this well-known environmental president, uh, especially when you think about comparing him with his successor, uh, President Reagan, who was often perceived as this kind of anti-environmental president. So automatically I knew going in or suspected going in that this was going to be a a positive story for climate adaptation, that this was going to be the moment. And according to all other literature that, you know, there was this huge boost of interest in climate change and then it would be countered by the following administration. What I discovered doing research, for instance, in the National Archives, they have a legislative archive that specifically traces what policymakers were talking about at the time. So there's all these files and you start to uncover what people were actually saying. And that kind of model of strong environmental president, climate change enthusiast with Reagan, that didn't quite fit. And what was discovered is that it was actually a competition between the, the Carter administration and various con- communities with different Priorities. They had different objectives about what this legislation would look like and what it what, what they wanted it to do. Um, so some a lot of people really voiced preference for the um, subordinating climate research to climate services, effectively applied climatology, and the administration favored a much more research only re- first kind of research first effort.
0: Think about what's happening today, and, and I'm sure you're kind of following the resilience and adaptation movement and. Was there a missed opportunity there or was that just sort of a natural progression of policy and um, it wasn't necessarily going to be as influential as maybe we we would hope if they were thinking about those things at the time?
3: In some ways, it was a. each side had their own. It depends on your perspective of what was reasonable or rational. And that's one of the things I thought was really interesting about this is that each side had an argument to make. And they had valid reasons for believing that their approach, their priorities were the best approach in dealing with it. Challenges of climate change, on the one hand, applied climatologists, for instance, thought, well, if climate impacts states differently, depending on their economic, their social, cultural, political structures then it strikes them as perfectly reasonable to invest in research efforts that are tailor-made to each individual state. So, in effect, states get their own ability to conduct research specific to their own interests. The administration's position was also valid in the sense that they thought a much more top-down, federal-heavy approach to climate prediction and improving climate predictions before people became the source of interest uh, was a much more valid approach. Effectively, you can't do good climate applied climatology without good climate science in the first place. And so it was two competing ideologies, both of which were very much natural, depending on your perspective.
0: I guess just wrapping this up, I would encourage my listeners to, to take a look. I think there's a lot to learn on even how that policy process unfolded. Okay, so what I could do is just attach the PDF to my show notes on my website and people can download it there. Gabriel, thanks for reaching out. This was a very interesting paper. I, I learned a bit about how this unfolded. And, you know, there, it seems like a lot more things got started a lot earlier than w- we realize. And it, it's great that people like you are out there kind of digging in into the history of these things, because I think it can inform policy today. But, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Doug. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Sean and Emily for coming on and sharing how they keep doing adaptation work in such trying times. And thanks to Gabriel for sharing his research on early adaptation efforts in the US. It seems like we're still early days in this pandemic. I hope you can keep your spirits up. I've been fortunate to be able to keep podcasting since I generally do these remotely anyway. Also, I'm recording my TV shows on Sympatico at home, so that's how I've been keeping up my role in the adaptation space. I'm sure many of you are dealing with families all quarantined together. I feel very fortunate to live in Tucson, Arizona with excellent weather and public lands with remote areas where you can get outside and still socially distance responsibly. Homeschooling has been an adventure. I have a fifth grader and a 10th grader. Thank goodness my wife has come up with a structured environment for the younger one. I have discovered to my horror that I can't even help my 11-year-old with his math homework. I'm that dumb mathematically. It's way too advanced for me. I need to stick to interviewing. I hope all of you are keeping sane during these trying times. I hope the podcast can be a resource to you as you keep up the important work that you're doing. All right, don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes. If you don't think you'd be a good fit for an interview, just come in and watch a show or two and participate in the community. I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, don't forget to check out the podcast and the classroom initiative we're doing. I have heard from many professors using America Daps in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that Kate Bishop-Williams of the University of Waterloo has developed. She has been a great volunteer for America adapts and we have episode guides for about 10 of the episodes. You can find those on my website, americadaps.org. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page in the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America adapts and Facebook and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out in that group, especially with we're all homebound with this pandemic. Just it's socializing, even via Facebook groups. We need to do more of this. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Reach out. Send me an email, americadapts at gmail.com. Say hi. Tell me about some recent episodes that you've listened to. If you have ideas for guests, I love hearing from you. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're sitting there right now and you want to write me a note. Please do. I would love to hear from you. And again, don't forget to check out the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.